All right, now if you take your Bibles, we had read for this morning, Jeff read that wonderful passage in Matthew 28, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. But I'd like us to turn to the passage that was read last Sunday by Tim, and that is in Matthew 16. If you turn to Matthew 16, Matthew 16, and I think you'll find that on page 882, 800, uh, 822 rather, 822. few weeks before I came here as pastor many years ago, there was a movie came out. And when I arrived here, I received a lot of teasing about that movie. It was called uh, uh, Hoosiers. Hoosiers. And um, Sean, you got my tape measure there. I'm going to need it again, son. You want to bring that to me? This, this is your ministry job right here, okay? And if you, you'll see Doug afterward, he has a, a gift to give you for that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sean follows me around, just helps me out. I need it, I'm telling you. But this movie was called Hoosiers. And uh, what a great movie. I mean, how could it not be with a title like that? Hoosiers. And uh, it was an excellent movie. It's about Hoosier hysteria, high school basketball. And how many of you have seen this movie? Okay, if you've not, you need to see this movie. You can get it. And... Um, it's based on the, roughly on the story of the Miracle Milan team, the Miracle Milan Indiana team in 1953-54. A high school in Indiana with 75 students that won the entire state Indiana high school basketball tournament. And back then, and actually when I played, there was no uh, Division One, Two, II, and Three. They just threw everybody in together. And so this little county uh, team beat... Uh, incredible powerhouse from northern Indiana and won uh, the high school basketball championship, uh, Miracle Milan, they're called. But in the movie, they're from a little town called Hickory, and they are the Hickory Huskers. And I love watching this movie for several reasons. First of all, just from playing basketball in Indiana growing up, but also many of the uh, Scenes from the film were from my home county. And so they needed extras for the movie. And so I can look in the stands and see people I knew that are actually in this film. And, of course, it's what they looked like in 1986. And I don't know what's happened to them. They seem to be getting older. But they're in this movie. And so it's hilarious. But every time I see the film, as exciting as it is, I have a little sad spot that comes in my heart in a moment because the Hickory Huskers gymnasium, one of these old gymnasiums, was a gymnasium that I played in when I was in junior high basketball. It was no longer being used for the high school team, that team in the county. It was used for junior high teams, and we had made a road trip, and we were playing there in this gym, and it was an incredible game. This was my ninth grade year. Back and forth and back and forth. We were ahead, then they were ahead. We were ahead, they were ahead. And finally, we were one point down. And my friend, the forward, Lynn Perdue, goes charging to the baseline. He does one of his patented fadeaway jump shots and swish. Buzzer goes off. We are jumping up and down and hugging each other. Fans that have come on the bus, they're cheering. But about that time, there's a whistle blowing. And the referee says, no baskets, 
no basket, three seconds in a lane, and he calls the number of a player, and guess whose number that was? <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a bad call. It was a bad call. <laughs> Two and a half seconds max, I'm telling you, that I was in there. But I got caught in the paint, and our team lost by one point. And whenever I see that movie, Hoosiers, I look at that gym, and that moment comes back to me. And not, not one of the great moments in my athletic career, not that I had many to mention anyway. Basketball is a great game. It's a great, great game. But you know what makes it fun? Basketball's fun because there's lines on the court. And there's lines on the court based on a book called The Rule Book. And it is playing the game inside those lines by the rule book that makes the game fun. Because I don't know if you've ever played basketball when there are no lines and there's no rule book. It's not fun. It's just mayhem. That's what that is. The game's fun when it's played inside the lines by the book. And friends, that's what we are trying to communicate in this series of messages, church by the book, church by the book, being the people of God, being his gathered assembly here at this time and this place for his kingdom's sake. Sometimes we can think it's the book stifles us, but friends, the book doesn't stifle us. The book sets us free so that we can enjoy life in Christ and enjoy life together. And so we have started this series of messages and for the next several weeks about what does it mean to be a church by the book, a church that is aligned on Scripture. Now last week, just, through, just a little bit of review, as we talked about church by the book, the emphasis last week was on the book, the Bible. And we referred to the Bible as the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture. And, and I told you a canon means a, a cane rod. It is a stick. It's a measuring rod. And the early Christians referred to the Bible as the measuring stick of God. They measured things by the Bible. And you remember last week I got my tape measure up here that Sean brought it up for me. And I, I was measuring the top of the pulpit and you know it was my truth remember my truth this this pulpit is 75 inches across that's my truth I'm sincere about that I believe that that's my truth but you know this measuring tape says it's 25 inches it's 25 inches we measure things by a standard we measure things by a standard and that's exactly the reason the Bible is the canon of Scripture. It's the measuring stick of all things. Why? Because we saw last week, because of the inerrancy of the Scriptures. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is inspired. It's God-breathed, Paul said. The Lord Jesus said that His Word could never pass away. He said that heaven and earth would pass away, but that his word would stand firm. He said the scriptures cannot be broken. The word of God, as it's given to us, is inerrant. It is God's canon, his measuring rod, because of its inerrancy. It's also 
our measuring rod because of the sufficiency of the Scripture. The sufficiency of the Scripture. It is all sufficient to guide us in faith and in practice. This is the standard that guides us in what we believe and in how we behave. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. You remember 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's a verse on the screen that we shared. He said, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Paul says, I, I'm coming to you, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing these truths. I'm writing these commandments of God. That means orthodoxy, right belief. He said, I'm writing these things to you for a purpose. What's the purpose? So that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the household of God which is the church of the living God. Here's one of the very few occasions where the local assembly is referred to as the household of God, the church of God. Paul says, I'm writing to you and I'm giving you this right doctrine, this orthodoxy, these true beliefs, so you will know how to behave yourself where? In the church of the living God means how we relate to one another, how we practice our faith together. So orthodoxy, right belief, guided by Scripture, shows us how to have orthopraxy, right practice. Faith and practice are guided by the Word of God and taught by the Word of God. So what do we do? We take the Bible and we use it not just as a measuring stick, but you know, I've got another carpenter's tool up here today. This one's just a little bit bigger. This is a carpenter's square. <laughs> now, you know, it's funny that I would have carpentry tools up here because I'm the farthest thing from a carpenter you've ever seen. It was kind of humiliating. It is around the house still. Kids might come and say, Dad, where's Mom's toolbox? <laughs> think, think about that. Dad, where's mom's toolbox? As if I couldn't. I can make some great things. I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich you wouldn't believe. I mean, I can make one of those. But why do I have this? This is a square. Because you see, the Word of God not only tells us how to measure things, it tells us how to measure ourselves to see if we square with the Word of God. You know, it's possible to have right Length, height, width, but maybe we're not square with it. I remember years ago, there was a hallway back here in another building. We had some of our men work on it, and uh, we're trying to save a little money, and we did. And guess what? They got it the right length and the right height and the right width, but it wasn't quite square. So when you'd walk down the hallway, you kind of went like this, you know, just, it just leaned a little bit. It wasn't square. That's what the Word of God does. It helps us not just to measure truth 
but also to measure ourselves so that we are squared up. We're aligned with the Word of God. Now, that's what we need to do, not only as individuals, but as a church. And that's the reason I want you to look now at Matthew chapter 16. I've had you turn here because this morning as we talk about being a church, we want to be a church that's aligned on Scripture because a church must be aligned on truth so that it can be a light for the truth. You see, if we're not aligned on the truth for ourselves, then we are putting our light under a bushel basket. But what is the church to be? We are a pillar and the buttress of the truth. The purpose of a local congregation is to hold up and share the light of the truth of God in a dark world. And if we don't align ourselves on Scripture so that we believe the book and we behave by the book, we're not holding up the Scripture. We're holding a bushel, so to speak, basket, a, a hindrance to the light of the Scripture. We don't want to be guilty of that. But now notice Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 uses the word church for the first time. The first time the word church is used, it's used in Matthew 16. So this morning, I want us to think about church by the book. We talked about the book by the book last time, but church, what's it mean to be the church? And we're going to expand on this, myself and other pastors, here the next few weeks. What does it mean to be the church? Well, there's a principle of studying your Bible. Let me give this to you. It's called the principle of first mention. The principle of first mention. The first time a doctrine is mentioned in the Bible, you will find in that first mention all the DNA for everything that God's going to say about that topic. And here you have, in Matthew 16, the first mention of the word church. But you find in it the DNA of what the church is to be until Jesus comes back. So here we have, in Matthew 16, the DNA of what West Park, one of those churches, is to be until Jesus returns. Let's look at this story. It's an amazing story, Matthew 16. We're told that Jesus took his disciples on a journey. He took them to the most unlikely place you could imagine. Notice in chapter 16, and we're just going to read through this, beginning at verse 13. The Bible says that Jesus took them to this place. Now, when Jesus came, verse 13, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now notice, when Jesus goes somewhere, he doesn't go by accident. And he takes his disciples intentionally to Caesarea Philippi. Now stop here just for a moment. This was the last place any Jewish man wanted to be. Or Jewish woman. This is the last place in that entire region that any of them would have wanted to be. As a matter of fact, I guarantee you, every one of Jesus' disciples were saying, what are we doing here? 
Because you need to understand something about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea was where King Herod the Great built a temple to honor the God-man Augustus Caesar. That's the reason it's called Caesarea. He built a temple in northern Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon to honor Caesar Augustus as the divine Caesar. His son, Philip, several years later, not only built, helped expand the temple, but he built a city around this so that it became known as Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea of Philip. King Herod built the temple. His son, Philip, built the adjoining buildings around it. Now, if you go to Israel today, you can see some of the remains of that. This temple, follow carefully, was built in front of this cave. This cave is at the base of Mount Hermon. And for thousands of years, a spring of water ran out of the bottom of this cave. It was very lush with vegetation. And ancient pagan idol worshipers would come to this cave and they would worship false gods. Gods like Baal. Gods like Pan, the the Greek god of nature. And for centuries before even the time of the patriarchs and David, even before Abraham came to the land, this was a place of the worst forms of idolatry, even of human sacrifice taking place inside of that cave to satisfy the gods. False prophets would go down into the cave and come out and say they had messages from the gods. And so you can see how abhorrent this place was to followers of the Lord God, Jehovah. But notice here, Herod built a temple in front of it. So that when Jesus came there, it looked like this. There's a temple built in front of this cave. And there's adjoining buildings around it. It's fabulous. It's shining marble in the sun. And so Jesus did not just bring them to this place out in the middle of nowhere. He brought them to the very steps of a temple that had been built to honor Caesar as God incarnate. And guess what that cave had been called For centuries, the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades, the entrance to the underworld. So Jesus brought his disciples to the place most identified with pagan worship and the worship of a false god called Caesar Augustus, believed to be a god. And he brought them there to ask a question. It's a year and a half or two years into his ministry. And he says, now, here's the question. Who do people say that I am? 
Who do people say that I am? Verse 14, notice they answer. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. They believe you're John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. John the Baptist had recently had his head cut off. Some say you are Elijah. Elijah went up in a fiery chariot and the, the prophets seem to say that Elijah's coming back before the great day of the Lord and they believe that you're Elijah who's come back from heaven. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Because according to tradition, Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant before the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And so they believed that Jeremiah would come back and reveal where the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. And some said, well, they think you're one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asked them the question personally. Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Of course, someone's got to speak for them, and it can only be one person. Whom? It's Peter, okay? He's got to be the first one, and this time... Not always, but this time, Peter, he just nails it, okay? He speaks up, and Peter makes his declaration. Here's Peter's declaration, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That's what Christ means. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow. Now think about who is saying that. A faithful Jewish man is saying that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. And not only the Messiah, he is the son of the living God. To say it that way meant that he was of the very nature of God. That he was God incarnate with them. That he was equal to the Father. Here you have a Jewish man standing in front of that pagan temple. It's, which is dedicated to a false god man, Caesar Augustus. And he says, you are the son of the living God. What a moment. And it is just grips Jesus' heart. Here you see the humanity of Jesus. He says, blessed are you, verse 7, blessed are you. Or the vernacular would today would be, yes, you got it. Boom. And this is it. You, you've got it. Blessed are you, Simon Marjona. You have been graced by God. God has graced your mind Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. And someone didn't tell you. My Father in heaven, by His grace, has revealed to you who I really am. You understand. You get it. That's the gospel truth. I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes his declaration. Jesus speaks back. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now notice what Jesus says. It's very, this is very important. Tune in here. He says, I say to you, you've told me who I am. Let me tell you something. You are Peter, and he uses the word Petros. Petros, which means a stone. Jesus nicknamed Simon Barjona a stone. A stone. He said, you are Petros. But then he said this, upon this rock, and he didn't use the word Petros. He used a word like it, Petra. Petra. And Petra doesn't mean a stone. It means a huge slab of rock. It, it means literally, as we could say, the bedrock. Peter, you are a stone. And upon this bedrock, I will build my church. What is the rock? What is the rock? Well, it's connected. Listen to what Jesus just said. He said, Peter, you have spoken what God has revealed to you. You have made the gospel utterance. I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter, what you've just said your confession, what the Father has revealed to you, it is that rock upon which I will build my church. My church is going to build on that God-given, grace-given knowledge that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. That's what I'm going to build my church on. Now, of course, Jesus is the cornerstone. We understand that, and that's taught in other scriptures clearly. But here he's speaking about Peter's rock-like testimony, the truth of the gospel of who Jesus really is. I will build on that revelation my church. Now there is the first time the word church is used. I will build my church. Now the disciples understood what he meant by the word church. We just need to make sure we do. The word church was a common word in that day. It, the word was ecclesia, ecclesia. We get our word ecclesiastical or, or ecclesia from that, meaning having to do with church. But the word ecclesia meant a gathering, a, an assembly. That's what it was. People were called out to an assembly. What does the word church mean here? Literally it means called out. I will build my assembly, my people that I have called out. They will be my assembly, my community. I'm building a new community. I'm building a new fellowship, a new assembly. People that by the grace of God will have revealed to them the gospel of who I am. And on that revelation and by that power, I'm going to call out my community. Now notice, Jesus made two promises about that community. Two promises. Notice, he made the first promise, verse 18, he promised the advance of the church. 
there would be the advance of the church. I will build my church, and now notice, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Now ask yourself, remember, where is Jesus standing? He's standing at the gates of hell. He's standing at the gates of Hades. This structure deifying a man. Paganism and humanism wrapped together. That's where Jesus is standing. And he takes 12 men and he leads them there and he says, on what God has revealed to you, this revelation of who I am, I've brought you here. We're standing right in the epicenter of darkness. And I tell you, based on what you have said, I'm going to build my church. And the authority of the enemy, the very power of hell, will not be able to stand up against it. Now, this is a moment. Man, this makes, this makes the okay corral look like just a pop guns, Okay. This is really big. Jesus is looking right into that heart of darkness and he says, my father is going to reveal to people who I am and starting with this little group, hell itself will not be able to stand against it. Wow. What's the weapon? How do we bring down the darkness? Political power? No. How do we bring down the darkness? Forcing people to our views? No. Do we go out and bring people under the dominion of Christendom? No. How do we bring down the darkness? With the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. And from that very day, friends, the gospel's been going forth. And the enemy, Satan, cannot stand against the force of that truth. That is our message, friends. And that is the authority. Notice the authority of that message. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's not saying, Peter, you get the keys. You got the keys of the kingdom. That, that's not what he's saying. He's speaking to the whole church here. He's speaking to these apostles who will be the, the, they're the founders of the church and all the ones that will follow. He says, I'm giving you the authority. Keys means authority. I'm giving you the authority to speak in my name. I'm giving you the authority to open and close, bind and loose. Do you see that? That means I'm giving you the authority to say what is free and what is right and to say what is not free and not right. It's not your authority. It's your authority to speak on behalf of heaven on earth. Now, friends, there it is. Here is the authority of the church, and it's the only authority the church has. It is the God-given authority to say what he says. That is the authority. 
It is for us to say on earth what God has already declared to be right and wrong. That's how we bring down the darkness. That's how the barriers come down. That's how lives are set free. It's when people with the authority, not their own, but the authority of Jesus Christ speak saying what he says, saying what the word says, in that power, the devil's hold is broken on souls. One person at a time, people are brought out of the gates of hell and they're brought into the gates of the kingdom. One soul at a time, the prince of darkness is weakened as the church is coming against his kingdom. Friends, listen, we're not to have a fortress mentality. Oh, woe is us. We're just a remnant. The world is so evil and full of the devil. And we've just got to huddle together. And every once in a while, we might wrap a gospel track around a rock and throw it over the wall. No. The power is in God's word. His message. And with love in our heart, knowing we didn't figure this out ourselves... It's only by grace that we're in the church at all, that we're members of Christ. But we go out and say what God says in love. Friends, that's the power to change people's lives. That's how it happens. And that's all the church is about. When church gets around about anything else other than that, it has lost its way. It's no longer aligned. It's no longer square. We've gotten away, sidetracked, rather than to recognize we are God's assembly. And our lives have been brought into the kingdom. And now we have the privilege, yes, us, little flock, we have the privilege wherever we live and we work and we play in our neighborhoods and as we gather, whenever we have opportunity, we just share the witness of God's truth, friends. Satan shudders at that. But when churches come up with schemes and ideas and smart idea ways of trying to sneak up on somebody that doesn't know Jesus and maybe, excuse me, say a word that's not politically correct. When, when a church is not lovingly bold and we're not willing to say what God says with love in our hearts, when we pull back from the truth, we push people back into the darkness. When we pull back from the truth, we push people back into the darkness. The church is called out by the gospel. And here we also see the church is called forth for the gospel. We are called forth for the gospel. I want us to close where we ended up in Matthew, when we read this morning, Matthew 28. Let's end up where we read this morning, Matthew 28. Jesus gave authority to the church. Now, what's the church? How does the church go against the gates of hell? What's that look like? Okay, here's what it looks like. 
First of all, here's the authority. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, who has all authority? So how much authority does anybody else have? All. I heard a preacher one time say, All means all, and that's all that all means. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now here's what you're going to do with this authority. My authority, here's what I give you authority to do. Go and be making disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go be, be making disciples. How do you do that? How do we make disciples? Oh, here's your authority. Verse 20, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's your authority. Behold, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. That's how you do it. Jesus said, this is how I'm going to build my church. This is my mission. My church exists for my mission. The church, with my authority, is going to go into all the world and it's going to make disciples, not just make converts, not just get people to pray the prayer. No, make disciples. A disciple is what we're out to make. Yes, people must be converted, but that's just the beginning. That's not the end, right? We go make disciples. We, how do we make disciples? How does someone in the grip of darkness, of hell, become a disciple of the Prince of Life? How can I have anything to do with that? Here's how you do it. Teach them all things I've commanded you. You see, my friends... The gospel is the power of God to salvation. You're not the power to salvation. You can't make a disciple. I can't make a disciple on my own. But in Jesus' name, taking this book and sharing it with a neighbor, sharing the truth over coffee, you don't have to even open up the Bible. Just share what the Bible says. The power's in the word. Get your group of people. Talk about it. Share your faith, where you live, where you work, where you play. When you have a, a gathering, gather around the Bible. We start talking about the Bible, and we start looking at the Bible. And guess what happens? People's chains start falling off. I can't tell you how it happens. I've seen this for decades now. I'm just telling you the authority of Jesus is in the gospel. It's in the book. And this book will set you free. And this is the only thing that will set people free. But this book will change you from the inside out. Religion will change you from the outside trying to change in. And religion won't do it. But this book, by God's Spirit, will change you from the inside out. Out of the ashes in resurrection life. I've seen it happen again and again and again. And you don't have to be a preacher to do it. A five-year-old back here in children's Sunday school can go out and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. It starts right there. You want to know what it looks like? Here's what it looks like. Then we're gone. <laughs> I promise. You said, well, what, what's it look like? How, what's that? I, I mean, what we got to do? We just got to come up with a strategy. Got to have a way. 
I mean, what we've got to do? Come on, come on, come on, come on. What's the plan? We've got to get an idea. I mean, you know, times are changing. It's modern. People aren't the way they used to be. Come on now. That old stuff won't work anymore. We've got to be up to date. Yeah, right. You think you can be more up to date than this? Anybody? What's it look like? It looks like this. Somebody just sharing the good news. Here's what happens. Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up, full of the Holy Spirit, starts talking to a big crowd about Jesus. He starts bearing witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's been crucified and resurrected. And the power of God comes on those religious unbelievers. Religious unbelievers. Religious but lost. Lost in the temple. And they cried out. What must we do? Verse 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be changed. The promise is for you. The promise is for everyone who's far off. Everyone whom the Lord God will call will reveal this truth. And with many other words, he witnessed and exhorted them, save yourselves. So those who received his word, the word did it. Those who received his word were baptized and that day there were added 3,000 souls. And what happens? Here's the first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the church about? All things that Jesus had commanded. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were in fellowship, koinonia with each other, breaking bread, having communion with each other. They were praying with each other. All came upon every soul. Signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. Everyone who believed was together. The walls were broken down. They were sharing their possessions, meeting needs. And day by day, they were going to the gatherings in the temple. They went to the big gathering to worship and to hear the teaching. And they also were gathering in small groups together. They were in homes, breaking bread and having their food together. They had glad and generous hearts. They were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, that has never changed. Ancient times, modern times, future times. Here's the work of the church. Share the gospel in Jesus' name and with his love. Teach everything that he says. And God will call out his people. And they will gather around the apostles' teaching. And they will fellowship around the word of God. They will hold communion with each other. They will pray with each other. They will share and meet each other's needs. And there will be a light to the world. And the darkness will be scattered. That is the mission of the church. And isn't it great to be part of it? Praise the name of Jesus. Amen.